Book of Malachi, and you may not have heard of it too much. Thank you, sir. Um, it, if you were raised in church, truthfully, you probably heard about it when, when the preacher was preaching a tithing sermon. That's when it's usually mentioned. Um, we will talk about that, but I promise you this will not be eight weeks of tithing sermons. Uh, so, it's easy to find, and this is going to be the least scripture reference sermon that I have done in five years, and the whole span of scripture at the same time. We're going to talk about one, one verse. Uh, I would usually say get your Bible out and keep it there. I think you can remember one verse. Uh, I would still encourage you to keep your Bible uh, out. Uh, I don't know what page it is in the Tapestry Bible. I know the page in the bulletin is wrong uh, because I didn't change it. But it is chapter 1 of Malachi. You don't know where that is? Grab your Bible, find the New Testament, and go to the left. It is the book to the left. It is the last book of the Old Testament. And we're going to read verse 1. And then we're going to talk about the history before this. So, uh, here's what it says. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Usually we, we spend a lot, time, a lot more time reading the scripture. But we need to kind of introduce together who Malachi is, what his history was, because the context matters a lot. Now, one of the things I like about uh, the Old Testament is you get lots of different names, and I found this very interesting way of, of remembering the names. Uh, my personal favorite category is this right here, hipster baby names. And Malachi is mentioned under hipster baby names. You really could use it for all of that Old Testament. You have wonderful uh, uh, names in it. Both of our kids have Old Testament names. Uh, ironically enough, our eldest's uh, name, while it is Adam, he was not named for Adam. He was named for my grandmother, uh, whose middle or maiden name was Adams. So, uh, but it works out that way. What, sir? Oh, okay. So, uh, hopefully, you've heard about it before then. Uh, Malachi is one of the 12 uh, minor prophets. Now, they're not minor because of what they said being, being insignificant. Uh, if, if I handed you a note right now that said, your house is on fire, that's a short message, but that's a very important message. Yeah, see, the difference between the minor prophets and the major prophets, the major prophets are wordy. I mean, their prophecies are, are great and powerful and amazing, but their books are really, really long. Malachi is four chapters long. Matter of fact, in the Hebrew, it's only three chapters long. You can read Malachi in about 15 minutes easily. You can go through it over and over again. Matter of fact, what I would encourage you to do is what, what we did with the book, uh, the letter to the Philippians, and that was try to read this book every week. Uh, and, and so he's one of the, the 12 minor prophets, and typically they're kind of considered together as a group. Uh, what I would encourage you to do is try and read all 12 of the minor prophets because they're happening not at the exact same time, but the same general vicinity of time. And we're going to talk about that time here in just a second. As a prophet, uh, Malachi may or may not have actually been a real person. Now, that sounds odd, I know that. Obviously, whoever wrote the scripture is a real person. The problem is, is that the word Malachi literally means my messenger. It can be a, a, a proper noun. It can be someone's name. It would not have been a common name at that time. It, but it, it wouldn't have been completely unheard of. It, it might have been a nickname. 
It's unlike us because no one around here ever goes by a nickname at all, even though in high school, uh, all, actually elementary school through high school through college, I was known as Rat. If you asked people for Robert Terrell, they might not know who, uh, who, who Robert Terrell was, but they would know who Rat was. That was my nickname. I know that's weird. Lily smiling in the back. My initials spell it. Robert Adam Terrell. My dad did it on purpose, actually. Um, and if you want a good laugh, my, my oldest son. That's his name also. Uh, so we're passing it down. There's, there's a, a rat junior. Um, so guess back then, they did a lot like now. You may have a friend or something. You may have someone you know who just goes by their nickname generally. You're, if you look in the sports world, we do it quite often, actually, with sports world figures. Uh, lots of them are just known by their, their nicknames. Uh, I'm a Boston Celtic fan, and they're not playing in the playoffs at all, but half of their team uh, that used to be the Boston Celtics now play for the Nets. And the truth, Paul Pierce is on the Nets, and he's known as the truth. Uh, we see it all the time. Malachi could have been a nickname. It could have been that he was, was another prophet. There's speculation that he was either Zechariah or Ezra. Because his prophecies would have worked real well. Matter of fact, this statement, right, whoops, excuse me, uh, the statement in verse 1 is almost word for word the same as a statement that is done in chapter 9 and chapter 12 of Zechariah. So some people speculate that, that this is Zechariah making a, another prophecy. We just honestly don't know. It, I think it was probably a, a guy named Malachi, but the thing is, is that it doesn't change the prophecy one bit if it was someone else. His prophecy matters for a specific time. His prophecy matters for what's going on then. The individual delivering it is not the important thing. Now, I don't know about you, but when I used to think of prophets, I used to think of this. This is a, a photo from the Kansas, excuse me, well, it's a photo of a painting uh, in the Kansas State Building. Does anybody know who this is, by the way? This is John Brown, if you study Civil War. Uh, and, and for me, he's what I thought of when I, when I thought of the Old Testament. And just look at he's crazy. Now, whether or not John Brown was crazy or not, that's a different historical debate. But in this painting, he looks like somebody that if he walked in the restaurant, I would probably get out of the restaurant as fast as I possibly could. Uh, if, if he was walking down the street, I would probably think, don't make eye contact with him. Don't make eye contact with him. Don't make eye contact with him. That's what I think of, or used to think of when I thought of the, the uh, Old Testament prophets. Fire and brimstone, spitting at, and they do some really, let's just say interesting things. Some of the, the, the major prophets would, would do things that would make Jamie scream like she's screaming right now. And again, I'm blaming Adam for that one, okay? I, I'm, I'm thinking that it's Adam's fault. Uh, it's just easier to always blame the guy. Uh, that way, I don't look bad. If I blame you, I look bad. <laughs> See, some, some of the major prophets did some things like, well, Ezekiel, if you, if you read people talking about Ezekiel, one of my, my favorite things I've ever read was a psychologist talking about Ezekiel, and he was speculating on what psychological disorder Ezekiel had. I don't think he had one, but you read the things that, that God tells him to do as examples. One of which, my personal favorite, is he cooks his food over what would be known as cow patties. He uses cow patties as a fuel source to make his bread. How would you like that? I'd like to come home and you ask your spouse, hey, you're, you're cooking dinner tonight. Uh, you know, what are we having? We're having cow patty bread. 
that, you know, wouldn't that just make your, 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 your saliva start to run? You'd just get really excited about that. No, they do some weird things. Ezekiel lays on one side. That's not good enough. He lays on the other side. They do interesting things, and it continues over this because they're trying to convey a message. That message is to Israel, and what they're doing is they're speaking out God's word. The way I've always heard it told, because so often we think prophets are saying, this is going to happen in the future. This is going to happen in the future. Realistically, what they're saying is, this is what God says. Change your ways. If you don't change your ways, this will come in the future. So often, we treat prophets like they, they are foretelling. They're telling the future, and they're, they're saying, this is going to be here, this is going to be here. But instead, it's usually foretelling. They're saying, thus saith the Lord. God's message again and again and again is to point people to their past, to remember what he has done for them in the past, and to point people to their future and remember what he will do for them in the future so that they will change their present. Over and over and over again, God uses the past and the future to affect the way we live now. I have been faithful in the past. I will be faithful in the future. You can trust me now. When you read Malachi, he's going to say some strange things. He's going to talk about God's wrath. But God's wrath comes out of his love. It's always interesting to me that every now and then you'll hear somebody say, bless you, which you will hear somebody say, bless you, every now and then. But I'm saying that because you sneezed. Every now and then you'll hear someone say, God is love, but. God is love, but he must punish sin. God is love, but he has wrath. There is no but there. God is love. That doesn't exclude him punishing sin. That doesn't exclude him having wrath. All of that comes out of his love. If you think of it with parenting. If you think of it with, with your parents when you were a kid. There were things you did that your parents should have punished you for. I can promise you there were things I did that my parents needed to punish me for. And I wasn't a bad kid. I had a habit uh, of with my best friend racing home from, uh, from school to my house until my dad finally caught me on something and he punished me in such a way that not only did my bottom hurt, but I also realized I could have killed somebody. We were racing from, from high school to home and I cut through the parking lot of Kmart. Was driving through the parking lot of Kmart going way too fast. And looked over and saw my dad walking out of the Kmart. <laughs> you say that because you're like, oh, I understand that. <laughs> the most loving thing my dad could do at that point was punish me. It, it was not, Robert, I love you, but I'm going to beat you down now. It was, Robert, I love you, and therefore I'm going to punish you right now. The second God's wrath gets separated from his love, it's no longer a loving act. It's, it's just a terrible act. There are parents who punish their children. It has nothing to do with love. And most of us in the room would look at that and go, that's wrong. That's awful. And there are parents who never punish their kids and say, oh, it's just because I love them so much. But we see what happens to those kids. It's actually a hateful act. See, there is not a statement of God is love, but he must punish them. It is God is love, and therefore this stuff happens. It's a part of his love. 
I, I've mentioned this before. Uh, Pam and I are not opposed to corporal punishment at all, but for us, we put guidelines down. We were like, we will only spank our child, uh, children, since we have to, if we have to stop them from doing something for their safety or for the safety of someone else, and therefore it has to happen immediately. Otherwise, we'll use on a, a, other punishment. That's the decision we made. I'm not saying that's the decision everybody should make, but we had to spank Adam once because he was sticking a fork in, a, in an electrical alley. He was going to do that. We thought, hey, this is a pretty important thing that needs to be stopped right now. Pop! was the most loving act we could do at that point. The unloving act would have been to be like, let's watch this. <laughs> See what happens. <laughs> this could be fun. See, what you're going to read in Malachi is not God saying, I'm a loving God, but now it's time to get, get messy. No, it's him saying, I'm a loving God, and therefore there are going to be some repercussions. His wrath, his punishment comes out of his love. It's not separated from it at all. His, his anger comes out of his love for Israel. There is no division in it whatsoever. It's not that one second he's a loving God and the next second he's a vengeful God. The two are connected because he always uh, operates out of his love. So, it's all saying that context is key. You know that in language. You, you know that in circumstances. There are things that I could say that if I said them in one context would be, would be wonderful, and if I said them in another context would be highly inappropriate. Uh, we watched a comedian this, uh, this, this Friday night called Dimitri Moore, and he does this thing, good, bad, and, uh, and well, interesting. There we go. And he did one, and it was dark and hot. And the good was, you know, coffee, and the bad was a peach. See, the context is, is key. The words good, or dark, and hot aren't necessarily good or bad, but in your coffee, that's a good thing. In your peach, you don't want a dark, hot peach. That's disgusting. <laughs> context matters a whole lot. So therefore, let's talk about context. And for that, I need to use this little device right here. And you know what might be hurting this thing is the fact that I just stepped on it. Uh, so that's going to flicker for just a second. And then we are going to draw together. It's always fun that way. So, I'll take this off also because it hinders me a little bit in my drawing ability. No, I'm not going to take that off because the microphone's attached. You know that, that statement on but? I'm well organized, but I'm completely confused at the same time. So, I want you to to think of this line right here as a timeline. Now, this is not all of history. But we're going to do right here, this is going to be 2000. And it's going to be BC. And right here, we're going to do 0. Is 0 AD or 0 BC? It's 0. Isn't it neither? I would assume it's neither. Is, doesn't it go 1 BC to 1 AD? I've never actually looked it up. I, I think it goes 1 to 1. You may be right. We're, gonna, we're just going to go with zero. <laughs> so, um, I tell you what, though. I think you're right. So we're going to go 1 AD. Now, just so you know, if you go 1 AD, that's when Jesus was born. Probably not. 
He was probably born somewhere between 6 B.C. and 6 A.D. And there's a little bit of fluctuation there. He may have been born on 1 A.D. for all we know, uh, but we don't have a set time period there. Some people might go, oh, see, you don't really know when Jesus was born. That, that proves he wasn't there. Uh, they forget he was a peasant. Okay. In our own history in the U.S., if, if you were a slave, they didn't give you a birth some of us in the room, you might have family members who, who were not slaves, but were peasants. Uh, we don't really have peasants in the U.S., but you know, we're farmers and such, and they don't have a birth certificate. Why would Jesus, 2,000 years ago, uh, have an exact date? That would actually be weird. If we knew an exact date for Jesus' birth, that might be an indication the whole story was made up. It wouldn't uh, actually point to it being factual. The fact that we don't completely know speaks very well uh, of the truth of a peasant in the ancient Near East becoming uh, recognized as God. Because when he was born as a peasant, most people would have gone, oh great, there's another peasant baby. Yay. His mother didn't. His father didn't. But most everybody else would have gone, okay, another peasant baby born. That's great. So, 2000s uh, here, here, and we're going to go right there at 1000. This is a brief history of the Old Testament. Around 2000 B.C., there was a guy named Abram who ended up having a relationship with God. And basically, God said, hey, follow me. Yes, ma'am. Am I not speaking? Am I talking loud enough now? No, better. Okay. All right. Uh, God said, follow me, and I'm going to show you a place that I'm going to give to you. And I'm going to make your descendants as the sands of the sea, as the stars of the heavens. So therefore, Abram changed his name, and he became Abraham, and he followed God. And the story goes on and on, and there's lots of interesting stuff in that. But basically, he sees the land, he's there for a while, and then through his progeny, he ends up not, well, not him, but his, his children and such, end up not being there. And they go to another country, and that country is... Egypt. So they go to Egypt, and in Egypt, bad things happen. They build the pyramids. They make lots of bricks. Lots of other things. And they're there for about 400 years, a little over it, but not quite. Uh, and around 1500 B.C., there's a guy named Moses. Moses had a stick or a staff. You can tell it's a staff because of the little crooked thing on the end. Uh, God did really amazing things through him. For what purpose? <clears throat> Basically to free the, the children of Israel who were now slaves in Egypt. So they go from, here's the promised land and it is a land of promise. In other words, it's not yours yet, but it will be one day. And it's promise here. And through Moses and then eventually Joshua, it goes from promised land to the promised land. They are in the promised land now. And amazing things begin to happen. For about 400 years, there are judges, and the judges are basically these people who help uh, lead them as military leaders, and God is their king. There is no other king. It is just God. And then around 1000 B.C., the people of Israel, well, they really go downhill in their relationship with God. Scripture says in the book of Judges that each man looked out at, at his own interest and did what was right in his own sight. And they reach a point to where God uses a man named Samuel um, to, to act as the last judge. And while Samuel is there, they say, we want a king. So around 1000 B.C., 
Uh, and we're going to take this and do this to make another timeline. Around 1000 BC, they get a really tall guy to be their king. His name's Saul, and he's specifically picked because he's really tall. That's, that's what they like about him as a king. Is he's the biggest guy there. Uh, so if you're, you're, if you're judging your kings, you're going, hey, all the other nations have kings. Our king is taller. Therefore, he must be stronger. And he does an okay job for a while. He really does an okay job of, of leading Israel for a while. And then he goes downhill. He starts to take on responsibilities that are not his. He acts as a priest. He makes a sacrifice. Uh, then he tries to kind of correct things, and he consults uh, a... a um, divinator uh, and basically ask for the spirit of Samuel to come back and direct him and that's completely against God's will and Saul goes from doing an okay job to being forsaking and God says alright now I'm really going to choose a king after my own liking um, and in about what was it, about 1015 David who's not a really tall guy he was a really young man becomes king it's really the beginning of Israel's golden age. David, if you know the story, he does really great, and then he messes up. He does a great sin. Uh, matter of fact, one of the interesting things, if you read the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus, there are four, men, four women that are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. One of those is not mentioned by name. She is Bathsheba, the woman with whom David sinned. But it's such a horrific event within Israeli history that Matthew will not even mention her name. They try to just forget this whole thing. She's the only uh, person, only woman in Jesus' genealogy in the, the Gospel according to Matthew who's not named. The other women are, are, are named. She's not named. So David, he does really good. He sins. He repents. And it kind of goes downhill for a little while. And then there's, there's the son of his who comes about at 970. His name is Solomon. I'm going to make him a little taller than his dad. He's really, really wise. And at that point, he starts to do what David wanted to do. David wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build a temple for God. And God said, you are a man who's got blood on his hands. You're not the one to build that temple for me, but your son is. So Solomon builds a temple. It looked absolutely nothing like this, but I'm going to put lots of smoke coming out of it because there were sacrifices. So Solomon builds the temple, and everything is great, except for he taxes the people greatly. Uh, you read the story, and the people come to Solomon, and they say, hey, if you, if you lighten our tax burden, we'll follow you just like we followed your dad. Uh, and I'm sorry, not Solomon, Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Um, I knew that wasn't working, right? Rehoboam. Uh, they come to him and say, lower our tax burden, and uh, if you do that, we'll follow you just like we did your dad Solomon, and if you don't, there's going to be trouble. And he says, not only am I not going to lower it, I'm going to make it even worse. And what ends up happening is Israel splits. So you end up happen, having happen at uh, 930 B.C. You have the northern kingdom, which looks kind of like that, and the southern kingdom. You have two nations that, that have now developed. One is Judah, the other is, is Israel. You'll hear them called Israel and Judah. You'll hear, hear them called the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And the temple is in the Southern Kingdom. So going back up here, 
things go okay for a little bit in both parts. But what ends up happening is the northern kingdom ends up at 725 B.C. being taken away by Assyria. Gone. Decimated. What the Assyrians would do is they would come in and they would take away all of the people that they thought might be a threat. All of the people who they thought were smart enough to cause problems, who were powerful enough to cause problems, they would get rid of them and then they would bring other people in. And so you end up having the Samaritan race that's developed as a, as a result of that because what it, they are, are they are the leftovers of the northern kingdom Jews that were there and all the other people that came in. There was intermarriage. And basically those ten tribes of the northern kingdom kind of vanish. Just kind of gone. Not completely but close. The southern kingdom, on the other hand, right here, does a really good job of following God until 590 B.C. In 590 B.C., Babylon comes in. They destroy the temple. They disperse uh, the southern kingdom. They do much the same thing. Uh, they take the nobles, the people who, who were intellectual, the people who were powerful, they bring them. If you read the, uh, the book of Daniel, that's the whole circumstance. He's bringing people in and saying, hey, we might can find use for you. But the southern kingdom still kind of stays Jewish primarily. Still kind of stays uh, primarily Jewish. For 70 years, 70 years, they are in exile. It's known as the exilic region or a time period. Uh, you'll take the prophets and you'll divide them. You have pre-exilic and you have post-exilic. And then after 70 years, the Persians send back some people. And they begin to do things and they build the temple again. So there's a new temple, lots of sacrifices. And Malachi is around here. It's 430 B.C. Now, here's why this is important. And I know this is somewhat boring. We're, we're talking more history than anything else. Here's why this is important, though. When the new temple was being built, the people of Israel expected the same stuff that had happened with the first temple. When the first temple was built, God made it known that his presence was there. If, if you're a Raiders of the Lost Ark fan... One of the greatest movies ever. It's actually a pretty good example of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant held certain things. It was a reminder of the presence of God. And the Ark of the Covenant had these two angels who, whose wings, actually they're seraphs, but their wings pointed towards each other. And in the center space where there was nothing was the mercy seat. It's very interesting. You'll hear the mercy seat mentioned in Scripture. The mercy seat is not actually a physical item. The, the top of the Ark has the mercy seat on it. It's just a reminder of God's presence there that, that cannot just be put into a physical representation. There's no seat that can hold him. So what happens instead is in the midst of the nothingness, God has made his presence known there. And the first temple, God makes his presence known. And he says, through one of the prophets, through Haggai, he says this statement right here. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. 
The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. So the people heard this, and they said, well, the only way the second temple could be better than the first temple is if the Messiah comes and is in the temple. The only way it can be better is for the Messiah. Last time we had God's presence in in, in the in between the wings of the seraph. That was the reminder. Now God will literally be with us. It will once, be, once again be like uh, God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. They were expecting this to happen. And when the second temple was built, it was a little smaller than the first temple. Not quite as precious as the first temple. You read some of the prophets and they talk about uh, the old men and women crying because they remember what the first temple was like. You ever thought something was going to happen and you were so sure of it that when it didn't happen, rather than realizing your hope was, was in the future, you just like, eh. See, for, for Malachi's time period, what's happening is they've just gone, well, this really, really wasn't what we were expecting. Yeah. You're going to read where they are offering offerings still, but they're really not very good offerings. Matter of fact, Malachi says, you wouldn't give this to your governor. You would not give this offering to your governor and you give it to me and you say I'm your God. They're going through the motions, but they just honestly don't care. See, they've forgotten their past. They've forgotten their future. And their present is just meh. Just mundane. Just drudgery. My favorite theological word is this. It's Helsgeschichte. It's a German word. And I love it. One, because I used to be a, an eighth grade boy and it almost sounds like you're cursing when you say this. <laughs> you're not. But it just always makes me laugh because you know, it's the type of thing that you could just you could you could uh, accidentally hit your thumb with a hammer and go Helgashikta, and somebody would think you actually had just said something. It actually means holy history. It's German for holy history, and the theological concept is this: that God works through history to bring about His salvation. See, our faith for those of us who are Christians, it is a historical faith. We do not just blindly believe in myths. We, we have historical events that are a part of this. We have historical accounts that are a part of our faith. There are aspects we can't prove. Those are still faith. I cannot prove to you scientifically the resurrection, but I can prove that Jesus existed. That, that is not some historical anomaly. We have a historical faith. And what you see again and again in the story of Scripture is God working through history to bring about his salvation. He's working in the history of Israel to, to bring them to where they are a people who displays His glory for all the world. He works through their failures. He works through their success to make them to be His people. The same is true with us. Some of us in the room have had terrible stuff happen in our lives. Our God is so great that he uses the terrible stuff in such a way that he's able to accomplish good through it. 
doesn't mean that it will be good. It means that his goodness is so good that even evil ends up working for him eventually. I've mentioned before my best friend in college was, was abused by his mother and his brother. He was adopted. All she had to do to make his life better, all his mother had to do to make his life better, was not adopt him and his life would have been better. And Brian will tell you that God used that. He overcame them. His abuse, it will never be good. It will never be like, oh, it's okay. No, what happened to him was terrible, but God is so good that he's able to take the evil that happened to him when he was a kid, and he causes good to happen through it. God works in the midst of history. The good that happens in your life, the bad that happens in your life, the, the mundane that happens in your life, the exciting that happens in your life, God works through that to accomplish his will in your life and in my life to shape us into the people he wants us to be. To shape us into people who look like Christ, but not as just clones who look like Christ in, in examples of like how Christ would look as Emily. How Christ would, would look as rich. He, he does that through our lives, through all of the circumstances of our lives. And the people of Israel, at this point, they were just like, eh. So what we're going to be talking about for the next eight weeks, I know it's four chapters, don't worry, I'm not taking a minor prophet and turning it into a major sermon. He talks about uh, eight different things in this. For eight weeks, we're going to talk through this. And I promise it won't be as much history. I love the history, but it's going to be much more practical in a lot of ways. But what I hope you remember is this. Through Malachi, God was telling the people of Israel about their past. He was telling them about their future. Because he wanted them to change their present. He works in the history of the past. He works in the, the hope of the future. And he affects our present. And he wants us to live our present out for him now. So before I hush up, does anybody have anything that needs to be added? Oh, yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, he disciplines those he loves, which is true of any anything. Uh, parents discipline those whom they love. If it was, he wouldn't love us. All right, guys, then join me in prayer, and we'll sing, I promise you, uh, eight weeks. We won't go any further than that. Uh, I say that because I, I went 84 weeks with the Gospel of Mark, so only eight weeks on, on Malachi. Join me in prayer, please. Father, uh, thank you for working through our history. Help us to see our future, and help us to live in the present for you and with you. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's sing together. <laughs>